Isn't it amazing how fast time flies, like they say, particularly when you're behind, things you should have done didn't get done. I uh, have returned from this last week being back in Minneapolis of a gathering of representing 860 Presbyterian churches, gathering together of how to respond to what's going on in our denomination. In fact, I'll have to be leaving. I'm supposed to at 10 o'clock be at West Hollywood Presbyterian Church. I chair the General Mission Council, and the first church that has voted to leave our denomination is West Hollywood, which is about 80% gay and lesbian. And the question is, well, why would these brothers and sisters want to leave? And their response is, because it's an abusive relationship. So all this dynamic going on, we're going to be having in two weeks a town hall meeting. We're doing it at 4 o'clock. It's on the 11th of September over in the chapel to discuss. The quick bottom line for all of us is uh, it's, it's really great to have 2,000 angry pastors for a week. It's such a blessing uh, to the heart. But actually there's really a spirit not of anger but a sense of joy and of hope and a new denomination is going to be being formed in January and what we need to be praying about is do we stay and continue as salt and light within the PCUSA, Presbyterian Church of the United States, do we go with these other probably 500 to 1,000 churches that are forming a new denomination? And the big question, what is all the fight over? This, the Bible. And the question is, is for us, why we've been doing this series on the Word. Uh, I, uh, three weeks ago when uh, we were celebrating together, you guys launching the two mission churches and uh, Bill Crawford for Water's Edge down at Manhattan Beach, and I was over in the 901 service. Uh, Chris Greer, if you want to have a great sermon, come back at 11 o'clock, because Chris Greer, who is our uh, director of college ministry, is going to be preaching at the 11 and at the 6 o'clock service. But I wanted to share with you some of the information that I gave when, at the 901 service, because it's very important that I think that you have this information. You know, it's really, when we talk about as Christians, the Word of God, what do we mean by that? Well, we have seen that when we say the Word of God, for us as Christians, it's threefold. There is the written Word of God, the Scriptures. But you keep hearing me say ad nauseum, we don't worship a book, we worship the living Word, Jesus Christ. And the proclaimed Word of God, which you just read in Deuteronomy, hear, O Israel, notice it didn't say write, O Israel, hear, O Israel, the Word You shall love the Lord your God. And the proclaimed word is when the Holy Spirit touches us. We all have hearing problems. Uh, You know I love that story of an older couple. He was worried. He thought for sure his wife, she obviously was losing her hearing. And he thought he'd do a little test. And she was sitting there reading the paper. And he stood back and he said, honey, can you hear me? And nothing. And he thought, oh, no. And he stepped forward a little closer. And he said, honey, can you hear me? And nothing. And he started to tear up. And he came right behind her and he said, honey, can you hear me? And she said, yes, for the third time. (laughs) We think others are deaf and very often it's us. As we said, the word Bible comes from the Greek word biblion, the Latin biblios, meaning scroll or books. Over a hundred million of these conservatively will be printed and purchased this next year. 
It is the most fought over, the most beloved, the most loathed, the most fascinating book ever written in history. And we saw a few weeks ago why the Bible was written with the invention of the alphabet and of the codex, the page. It was possible now to write this down. It was necessary because the corruption of the message early on. But the question is, as we're gathered here this morning, is why I want you to know this. When I just gather rather really smart brothers and sisters, but they make different conclusions than me. They have their opinions and I have the right ones. But as we come together, the question is, why these 66 books? This is a library. Nobody said, let's write a Bible. Didn't fall down out of heaven. How come Roman Catholics get more for their money? Both of my daughters married Roman Catholics. You only have two sacraments. They have seven. More for your money. You have 66 books. They have 73. Why the extra books? And how did they come to these? I want to show you here as we gather this morning in this wonderful, as I said before, this elegantly messy process that is so like God in his physical creation. You get into high school biology, you start to think, well, everything's orderly and you see and you understand. Then you get into more advanced chemistry and physics, you realize, well, that's pretty random. Then you get into the real super discoveries and you find out, no, underneath what appears to be random is very orderly. And likewise, what looks like this process of how these 66 came to be, there's this elegant connection, if you will, of God's response. And there were three reasons that the early people who composed and put together the church fathers these documents. This book in here, I would love to be able to change my mind in a lot of things that this society is for so I wouldn't look like the bigot. But these in here are authoritative. The kicker is they're not authoritative because they're in the Bible. They're in the Bible because they were authoritative first before they were compiled together. And there were three basic criteria that the church fathers used in putting these down. The church fathers, the disciples of the disciples, in putting them together. If you look from this slide, it's basically ACC. Apostolic authority. Testimony, not mere opinion. If you were not an apostle or an associate of an apostle, there are many books. We'll take a look at some of them this morning. Good books, but they were tossed out. Second of all, conforming to the rule of faith. One holy apostolic Catholic meaning universal faith. Not even if there was a good book, if it didn't, if you will, jive with what already was known was written by the apostles. And we're going to show a couple of those. It wasn't accepted. And finally, the continual acceptance by the church. What's corroborated versus assumed? What did the other Christians who were out to say? No, we know that Paul wrote this. He didn't write that. And the early fathers put that together. And as we come together, I put on a lot of different hats as your pastor. Sometimes I'm a shepherd and I care for you twice a year. Other times, I put on a hat for a coaching. Come on, we can do this, guys, and leading. But this morning, I want us to slip on a little bit of a scholar hat. And I want us to be able to understand when I tell you, I trust this book with my soul. Why we have a good reason to do that. And as we come together and to realize the more that we find out in this beauty of how in the storms and trials and this journey of life that we go through. And if you think it's tough now, buckle up, boys and girls. It's going to be Mr. Toad's wild ride out there when we go into this world going out there. And we have a reason to have peace. Well, first of all, when I say that the first criteria is the apostolic authority, 
Turn back over and look at to Deuteronomy, the sixth chapter. We're going to be jumping around to a lot of passages this morning. I always, on uh, page 143, I always kid about being a Baptist pastor on espresso. Actually, if I was a Baptist, if you guys were Baptists, I wouldn't need to tell you the page number. But anyway, page 143 in the sixth chapter, and as they are gathered together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord of one, or Echad. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, all your might. Keep these words, recite them, look at the verbs, bind them and write them. You got right there the whole process. As I say, probably the best book that you could buy on looking at how the Bible became a book, our own Dr. Bill Schneiderwin, UCLA Department of Studies over there. That there was this orality of Israel, that there weren't books when they came out of Egypt. First of all, there were scrolls. Certainly some people could write and read, but it was a pre-literate society. It was agrarian. They were shepherds and they were slaves. And so they, somebody proclaimed and it went to textuality, the writing down. And we saw a few weeks ago how both Socrates as well as others and Plato didn't trust the written word because he didn't, they didn't trust the reader. They wanted to trust their mouth here. But in this process, as it begins to be written down, and probably, when was the most written down? I agree with Bill. Turn over to 2 Kings, the 22nd chapter, page 310 in your pew Bible. This is a great account of a discovery. In the 22nd chapter in verse 8. Now, Josiah, he's a young boy when he begins to reign. He's eight years old and he, as he grows up as king, he sends somebody into the sanctuary. We're getting ready, you know, we're do, redoing some stuff here. Beautiful stained glass uh, that was given to us that we have over there. And we've been cleaning out closets. You can't believe some of the things. We found four lost junior hires back here when we were cleaning it out. Well, the same thing is going on in the temple. But look what happens here in verse 8. The high priest Helkiah said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. When Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, he read it. And Shaphan's secretary came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it to the hand of the workers who have oversighted the house of the Lord. In other words, the contractors. Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king, But the priest Hilkiah has given me a book. And Shaphan read it aloud to the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. So what happens is that during the time of Hezekiah, roughly 700 B.C., and Josiah, say, 620, that as Israel, new dynamics are taking place, and the, they always had the word written down in that sense, but they didn't know it. And have you been to a lot of worship services before? I have in churches. And the preacher gets up and he'll quote scripture rather than reading it. And you'll say, yeah, and you, but you know enough scripture to know whether it's right or not. Well, what if it happened for generations and all of a sudden you find a Bible and they come together and they say, wow. And Josiah hears this and he says, we are so far off the mark. I told you before that when the first Christian nation, Armenia, one of the early Armenian kings who was a Christian. And the Gospels were so rare to have written parchments. And the first time that he had a copy of the Scriptures, it said either these are not the Scriptures or we are not Christians. They were so far off. And then after that, he moved to Glendale. But as we see this process of what God is doing, that he is finding and they're finding they're starting to write it down. I want to show you another example. Jump over to Luke, the first chapter, page 830. 
As you know, the Gospels are not a biography, they're an anthology. The writers of Scripture, John, we've read before, says, Now Jesus did many other things. These are written that you might believe in the name of the Son of God and have life. In other words, they're not telling you the whole life story. They're just telling you the important stuff. Luke, the only Gentile, the only person that would have a pork omelet, is sitting and writing. And he is a Greek. He's a doctor and he's a historian. Look at verse 1. Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those from the beginning were eyewitnesses. There's that apostolic authority and servants of the word. I, too, decided after investigating everything carefully from the very first to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. Well, how did they sit down and say, this is of God, this is not? There were three big events in the last 2,000 years of that. I have a Bible. I left it back in my office. Someone gave it to me. It was printed in a precious item of mine. It's printed in the year 1630. And I have a Bible here. How do I know the difference between that book and this is the same as I can look at it and read it? But what about others? Well, there were three councils. The first council was really the Council of Yavne. Jamni is a bad corruption. This is uh, about an hour south of Tel Aviv. It was an area. And at the time, when they gathered together, around 90 AD, as they were getting ready with the destruction of the temple and getting ready, that the Jewish scribal leadership said, what are our books? The Tanakh, the Old Testament. What, what do we trust? And also because the explosion of Christians. Because these followers of this new faith were so exploding that the Jewish leadership got together and said, well, what do we have? So from Yavne, Rabbi Johann ben Zakia came together and, they, and there wasn't really a council that sat in this sense, but it was a gathering, a collecting. It wasn't like a meeting I just went to in Minneapolis. But there was a meeting like that in Carthage. And it was the big debate in 397. It is now a Christian empire. In the year 300, you would be crucified for being a Christian. In the year 400, you could be crucified for not being a Christian. What happened when Constantine converts, and did Rome become Christian, or did Christianity become Romanized? And the answer is yes. That in Carthage, because the Donatists, who had, it was a heresy, and slipped back, had handed over the scriptures, what do they do with them? And so they got together, and they made the decision of what you have in your book, those 66 books. Everything is going along, and in the year 1546, the Council of Trent, in response to your heritage, the Reformation coming out, got together and said, and that's when they added the Apocrypha books that you have between Malachi and Matthew. And the Apocrypha are good historical reading, but they said because they're not inspired in the sense of binding as we think the rest of Scripture is. By the way, the Council of Trent, I think... that did a better job with faith and works than even the reformers. Because the reformers were so driven on faith alone, faith alone, faith alone. And the Roman Catholic response was, well, faith with work. But anyway, it's always answering questions you never have. But if you had an autograph, that would be an original document. We have none of them. Why? Because of the process of textualization. Nobody really thought that this would be important. I think in God's wisdom, we don't have them because we'd be worshiping the document rather than what it says. A manuscript is somebody who wrote down later. As we saw before, there were the manuscripts of, there's the 
three different family histories that are coming out of there. But what about history? How can I trust what I have here? You know, there's a new growing militant atheism uh, that's going in our country. And the question is, how do we, and particularly our students in the universities and in the workplace, say, well, these books, how can you trust them? Nobody was there. Nobody saw that. Well, that's a good question. It's called historical control. How can you trust what you have? Well, what about some of the great writings? Well, what about Homer? Homer, no one doubts, was one of really, if you will, kind of the story of the Greeks, and it is so desired. And by the way, I agree. When people think that the oral tradition is simplistic, you read Homer, and it was all passed along, word of mouth, the complexity and the richness of that story. But in Homer, written in 800 B.C., how many documents do we have of Homer? We have... 600 manuscripts from the year 250. Actually, it should be A.D. I miswrote that. A thousand years afterwards, and we have those documents. Nobody doubts that Homer wrote that. Okay, what about Josephus? Josephus was, no doubt, one of the great historians of the first century, a Jewish historian. He wrote, you know, the wars and other things. And we doubt that nine Greek manuscripts from what year? From the year 1,000. A thousand years afterwards. Nobody doubts that Josephus exaggerates, but no one doubts that Josephus wrote that. Well, what about Tacitus, the great Roman historian? Everybody knows how important Tacitus is in knowing if you ever had a Western civilization class in college, you know about Tacitus. Well, he wrote histories. One manuscript from what year? From the year 850 A.D. And no one doubts they wrote that. Well, what about the New Testament? How many manuscripts do we have from the New Testament? We have 5,446. If you throw in the papyrus ones, P, they're labeled, go up to 5,600, and written from the year 125 A.D. These are the people that are the disciples of the original manuscripts that were written. The point being, you may not have to believe in this, but this is by far one of the most documented books in the entire world, even if you don't have the original. So you see that we gather the first is their apostolic authority. The next thing is the criteria conforming to the rule of faith. And textual criticism, which we said before, is a very important science. And we need Christians in this to, to look at that and to be able to say when you talk to somebody. When I stand here and I tell you that I believe that there's more scripture that's in support of women being in leadership than speaks against it. And there is scripture that speaks against it, Timothy and Titus. I want to make sure that what I'm talking about is trustworthy. When I tell you that marriage is between a man and a woman and a lifelong commitment is the place for sexual expression of love, where do I get that? I get it from this book. Well, I better make sure that I've done my homework. When I tell you there's no other name under heaven where you can be saved except the Lord Jesus Christ, who told me that? This book did. Well, then I better be able to say, because you people look to me, and you look to Rosie, you look to others to say that we have done our homework for you, that you can trust this. And so this criteria of not only that, but of conforming to the rule of faith. And as we look at these manuscripts, the Alexandrian texts, which we look at, um, the Byzantine texts, they're different Greek documents. And as you blend them together and you see them, that you find out what you have in your hand is so trustworthy. And we can get off. I'm sure you've seen one of my favorite, I love New Yorker cartoons. The, the New Yorker where the Pope is sitting there in heaven and he's going, oh no, he's looking over an old manuscript. He's going, 
There's an R there. It's celebrate, not celibate. Did you see that one before? But anyway, that that what the original documents have is able to guide and lead us. Turn with me over to Galatians, the first chapter, page 945. Now, even the most liberal scholars will say, who don't believe in the resurrection of Christ or Walt Disney or anything, will tell you the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Galatians. Even the most, the most liberal said. So this is the one that everybody said, yeah, there's no doubt this guy named Saul of Tarsus wrote this. Look what he says here, the rule of faith. Chapter 1, verse 11. For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was proclaimed to me is not of human origin. For I did not receive it from a human source, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Christ. Pause. Paul, his entire life, will say, no one told me this story. Peter didn't. James didn't. John didn't. I met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Now, here's where he says, you know this. You have heard, no doubt, of my earlier life in Judaism. He says, you guys corroborate this. I was violently persecuting the church of God and was trying to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many among my people at the same age, for I was far more zealous for the traditions that would be almost the Talmud of my ancestors. But when God, who had set me apart before I was born and called me through His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son to me, so that I might proclaim him among the Gentiles. I did not confer with any human being, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were already apostles before me. But I went away once into Arabia, and afterwards I returned to Damascus. Now Paul comes along and he says, I received this on my own. I didn't ask any of those. By the way, he goes later and he'll say in the second chapter after 14 years, he goes to Jerusalem and checks it out with everybody. And particularly Peter. Do you know why Peter and James, the brother of Jesus, because they both had post-resurrection appearances of Jesus that we don't have any gospel account of, but we know that. That Jesus showed himself on Easter morning to Peter alone, because Luke will say, for Jesus as I have showed himself to the disciples and to Peter. And also James, the brother of the Lord. And so where does Paul go? He goes to the two people that have had time with the risen Christ and checks it out. He's corroborating it. Interesting, if you long as you're in Galatians, turn over to the uh, end of the book into the sixth chapter there. If you look down at the bottom, verse 11, page 948. See what large letters I make when I am writing in my own hand. Paul has an amanuensis, you know, who writes on like a wax tablet and like taking shorthand. But here he pauses before you go to the parchment. If it was very expensive, the leather, the vellum. And he writes under the parchment, this is my signature. And why big letters? He says to the Galatians, you would have given your very eyes to me. I think, remember how he was blinded when we met the risen Christ? I think he has eye problems the rest of his life. I think the thorn in the flesh that he has is his vision. He asked God to heal it, heal it. And three times God says, no, my strength is made perfect in weakness. But he says, here I sign that. So he said, this is a signed document to show you that this is mine. This is the rule of faith before it was in the Bible. And you trust that because it works together. If you heard of Norman Normata versus Norman Normans, a rule that rules versus a rule that is ruled, when we're in zoning discussions always with our neighbors, it's a lifelong calling. But as we do that, and 
and we're working together in Mulholland with the building going on over here on the 405, when the city declares something, they can declare it as long as it's constitutional. Why is that? Because the Constitution of the United States is Norma Normans. It is the norm which everything else judges by. We as a free society, we have the Constitution. You can't go over the Constitution. You can pass any law you want as long as in conformity with that. You can have all, any book you want as long as it's with the apostolic faith, the early faith. As they were compiling these different writings together, they used that. You know, there's other Gospels. Every Easter or every Christmas, and I know some of you work for the History Channel. The History Channel came out, other Gospels never heard of. Like it's something, you know, big and important. And the American society buys it because the American society as a whole is dumb as a stump. But anyway, as... As, as, looks not everybody that as well these gospels there's the gospel of Peter there's the gospel of Judas there are the gospels and somebody said well there are other gospels you can't trust with your well the early church fathers knew about these other gospels and rejected them the laughing gospels Nag Hammadi which were discovered in Egypt in 1945 in northern Egypt one of these is the infancy narrative of Jesus and it says when Jesus was a little boy in Egypt I want to show you a piece of this this is from chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. After that again, he went through the village, and a child ran and dashed against his shoulder. So Jesus is a little boy playing on the playground, and a kid bumps into him. And Jesus was provoked and said to him, Thou shalt not finish thy course. You're not going to win this race. And immediately he fell down and died. But certain when they saw what was done, whence was this young child born, and for every word of his is an accomplished work. And whatever he says happens. And the parents of him that were dead came to Joseph and blamed him, saying, Thou that hast such a child cannot dwell with us in the village, and do thou teach him to bless and not to curse, for he's slaying our children. Talk about a preacher's kid. <laughs> you know why preacher's kids are such troublemakers? Because they hang around elder kids. I don't know if you know that or not. but So here's this story. Jesus is a little boy. He's out there playing. Someone's running ahead. Bumps into him. Jesus goes, You're going to die. And he falls down dead. And... They come and they say, you got to get rid of this Jesus out of there. I wonder why those aren't in the gospel narrative. If you were going to invent a little man God as a boy, you would make something like this up. And by the way, the writer of this narrative, I don't think they're trying to be deceptive. He's heard something that's out there. You compare that to the writing of Matthew and of Luke and of the, well, we know of the childhood of Christ. And it's so radically different. The rule of faith early on, the church fathers said no. No, this is not accurate. And so they compiled that together. Here's another from the Gospel of Judas. A city built high upon a hill cannot be hid. Sounds similar to Matthew, a city built on a hill, but goes on. Split wood, I am there. Lift up a stone and you will find me there. It's pantheism. It's pantheism, saying that God is part of everything. Well, Jesus didn't come close to that. The creator of all. This is my favorite. I think we should have it as a verse before you come in the sanctuary. Jesus talking to Mary. Lo, I shall lead her in order to make her a male, for so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who makes herself a male will only then enter the kingdom of heaven. Unquote. Let's just close in prayer, shall we? we got some transvestite gospel going on here. But what they're saying is that unless you look like a man, you're not saved. This is out of one of the Gospels. The other has good narration. So early on, 
The church fathers said, no, that doesn't conform to the rule of faith. And so the document was rejected. The third is the continual acceptance by the church. You know, we don't have any of the original autographs. But you know what we do have? Clement, who Paul speaks of, his friend and traveler, wrote a letter that we have from the year 97 A.D. We have this one. And he wrote to the Corinthian church, heeding them to listen to what Paul wrote to them years before. And he quotes ten of the books of the New Testament in the year 97. Ignatius and Polycarp. Ignatius born in 30, died in 107. Polycarp martyred 65 to 155. They were the disciples of John. John disciple. Remember, John is the only disciple not to die a martyr's death. And they quote from every book in the New Testament except third John. Justin Martyr, Arrhenius, Arrhenius in 180 quotes in a five-volume work against heresies. He quotes every book in the New Testament that you have 1,200 times. The point being, something was out there that these people were quoting from all the time, even if we don't have the original. Last verse I want to show you. Turn over to Mark, the 16th chapter. And the... Starting in verse 9, this is a great passage. And any time that I like it because it's called the shorter version of Mark, and anything that has to do with short Mark, I just love. But in Mark on page 830, you will see in the new RSV, I think does a good job in, in giving you the textual evidence that is out there. And every publisher has to decide how do they deliver this to you. Without confusing you too much, what you need. And they're making decisions for you. I hope that you can all see that you can trust what you have there. But even this, look at this. Look at verse 8. Let's go up to 7. But go and tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. That's the women at the tomb. Now look at what it has here. And all that had been commanded to them, they briefly told to those Peter. And afterward, Jesus himself went out through them from east to west, the sacred and perishable proclamation of eternal salvation. Look at a footnote down there. Some manuscripts don't have that. After this, verse 9, he arose early on the first day of the week. He appeared to Mary Magdalene, whom had cast out seven demons. He went and told those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. And when they heard that he was alive and been sent by her, they would not believe it. After this, he appeared to another form to two of them as they were walking to the country, and they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Now, why are these footnoted? You know that old Bible I have over in my office from the year 1630 was written off of Greek manuscripts from the year 1000. Very old, and the Textus Receptus, which Erasmus wrote. But the book that you have in your hand come from Greek documents and other documents, Codex Leningradius and Sinaiticus, that come from the 3rd century. Because archaeology and textual criticism has discovered so much more. So the King James Version, though it's probably one of the most profound, I think, works of literature in the history of the world. It's a profound work that King James did. is not based upon documents as old as what you have. So why do I tell you all this? The bottom line is in this wonderful process of not only how it became a book and how it was compiled, that God can be trusted. And it's so like God. And that's why don't be afraid to put your faith not in a book, but in the living Christ who this book bears witness to. 
And if you never have, you need to do that this morning. We are so afraid of so many things. We're afraid of the economy. We're afraid of being alone. We're afraid we'll never be able to achieve what we wanted. We're afraid of almost a life of terror. And we're all afraid of death. Spring a few weeks ago, a new study from the Bupa Health Center, it's a large British health industry, and as well as from Harvard's School of Psychology, uh, Eva Shalub. They did a worldwide study of fear. It's fascinating if you Google it up. By the way, the most fearful nation on earth, and they wanted to find out what the fear was of aging. So they asked people who were middle age, 30 to 45, they determined as middle age, I call that young, but 30 to 45, what were they afraid of when they got into their 70s and 80s? This is a worldwide study. Male fears. Number one fear men have in middle age of getting older? Impotence. Oh, the depth of the male species, I tell you. Second of all, what men are afraid of? Losing strength. Because you have to become dependent on others. The third fear men have is retirement and irrelevance. That we're afraid that when we retire, we won't matter anymore. The fourth fear men have? Losing their driving license. Have you seen these people? Nobody loses their driver's license. What are you afraid of? Have you noticed that? The fifth fear, dementia in spouse or self. And even though women have Alzheimer's more, men are afraid of it hitting themselves or their wife. Ladies, what do you think? And this is a worldwide, I'm sure it's true for the U.S. What do you think is the number one fear for women in aging? Losing their beauty and becoming what they call invisible. In all cultures, losing beauty is a sense of being lost as a female. Second thing, ladies, you're afraid of? Abandonment by divorce or death, being left alone. Guys, we're so non-relational, we wouldn't know if it happened. Women are afraid of that. The third thing, this is interesting, women are afraid of? Financial destitution. You always hear that men can go broke easier? It's true. Becoming like a bag lady, being out there. The fourth thing, women are most afraid of? Cancer worldwide. By the way, they're afraid of the wrong cancer. They're afraid of breast cancer and more will die from lung and colon cancer. And the fifth thing that women are afraid of as you get older, becoming dependent on other caregivers. And why are women afraid of that? Because they know men are no good at it. (laughs) Seriously, that's what I was saying. And Jesus comes and says, fear not, for I am with you. Do not let your hearts be afraid. Peace I give with you. My peace do I give, not as the world do I give. This last week, uh, as we were discussing with pastors what Scripture means and how to trust it and how we can best serve the Lord, having great disagreements and boldly make a difference, one particular uh, scholar got up and he made a great statement. Someone asked him, they asked him, what's your definition of the gospel? Great question. He said, the gospel to me is a costly demonstration of unexpected love costly it costs somebody and it's a demonstration god didn't talk about it he did something on the cross unexpected while we were yet sinners while we were shaking our fist at god saying and spitting on the ground saying i'm going to do it my way god said i love you i love you who you are of love of wanting our best And when we go with this costly 
demonstration of unexpected love into this city. When people who are rude and mean and have done us wrong and not enabling sin, do not misunderstand me. At times you care enough to confront, but not wanting vengeance, not wanting to strike back. When we can boldly declare to the people who are lost and going to have a Christless eternity, to be able to tell to them an unexpected love. Well, there's some love that we expect, but not from whom. I love that story I've shared before in the late 18th century when someone driving on their wagon up outside of going into Wales and a horrible snowstorm hit it all the time. And you know in Great Britain as other places, any of you from the north, that sometimes these storms can come in the fall and you don't expect them. As they were driving along after the storm had cleared and there on the side was a, a dead horse and a buggy and a frozen dead corpse with the snow covered over her. As they came up to her, they saw her, and it was a woman who had no clothes on. And they thought the poor thing must have just gone mad in the snowstorm. And as they started to move her, they heard a cry. And as they pulled her back, there in her lap, all of her clothes wrapped around a little infant. The mother had given instinctively her life to save that child. And that child became one of the members of Parliament of Great Britain. What moves me is God and His love and the cold, icy judgment that Mark Brewer deserved wrapped His Son around me on that cross and protected me in this costly demonstration of unexpected love and for you. What are the creeds of your life? If someone said, here's the creed, this is what her life or his life is all about. You ever written that down? On the basis of what do you write that? Who do you speak into, let's speak into your life that you make the decisions that you make that I do? And what has proved more true than anything in the world Do not worry about anything, but by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. God said it. We can trust it. Let's pray, shall we? Father, how do we thank you that you have not left us alone in this world, God, but you costly and unexpectedly demonstrated a love for us that none of us deserve. Lord, I pray for any that are in this room that have been aware of another voice besides mine that's been tugging at their heart. And you're afraid. You're afraid of God. You're afraid of life. You're afraid of dying. You don't need to be. Not with a silly avoidance behavior, but in a peace that passes all understanding. All you need to do is say, Lord, I don't understand it all, but I trust, God, that I can come to you. Say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you paid for my sin on that cross. And, Lord, I believe that you're alive. And I take all I know of me and I give it to all I know of you. And and I invite you to come and take over my life. And you start that right now and it will last into eternity forever and ever. So, Lord, we pray now as we go that we would boldly stand upon the written word. Humbly, God, with class with respect and honor of all people, even those who disagree. 
but because the living word, Jesus Christ, is alive. Lord, as we come to you with our tithes and our offerings, bless those that give. Help them to honor you and to get the good news out there. Bless those that can only give a little. Give them comfort and faith. Show us how to help. And for those of us that can be stewards of a lot of resources that you have put into our hands to see how we would use them. Thank you, Lord. One other thing I would ask. Maranatha, send him back. For his sake we pray. Amen.